Hey there, folks. Before we get into this week's episode, I just want to let you know that at some point around the 36-minute mark, my mic disconnected and did not inform me and defaulted over to my laptop microphone. You might notice an extreme drop in the quality. It's We've, we've doctored it up as best we can, but we absolutely want to get this episode out to you. So there we go. Just want to let you know. Now on with the show. A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling choicey adult themes, as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. Today, we are tackling one of the most epic space battles ever put to page in original science fiction. So, get caught the fuck up, dudes. Hey there, this is Cross. I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. Think of us as your drunk weekly book club. So, a couple things. Today, I am testing out a new microphone. We'll see how that goes. It sounds glorious. I hope so. I've got some some other tweaking that I think I'm going to have to do to it. But for now, we'll see. But as far as content for this podcast goes, today, and this sucks. This section was a victory for the colors united under the Reaper, so the spracists shall be damned. I think we're going to have to, like, you know, coin that term fully. Spracists. Spracist. Yeah. <laughs> spracists be damned. Spracists. Perfect. Space yeah. racists. It's, it's a bit of a mouthful, but it makes sense. Yeah. So, <laughs> today is our seventh episode covering Morningstar by Pierce Brown, and we're here to discuss the second half of part three glory covering chapters 43 through 49 mm-hmm. but before we do that let's talk about what we're drinking uh yeah so i just got off of spring break spent some time with a high school buddy not high school college college buddy and i i drank basically every day for nine days straight so uh today today i have a virgin grapefruit mule <laughs> and peach green tea that's what I've got. I'm not, <laughs> it's, I'm not drinking tonight. I've got I've got shit to do after recording, and uh, yeah, my liver needs a break. But I do have a little splash of bourbon for any uh, prediction stuff that I need to need to fulfill my duties on. But otherwise, grapefruit mule without the vodka, which is just grapefruit juice, lime juice. I put a little bit of grapefruit bitters in there and ginger beer. And I uh, garnished it with a lime wedge and a maraschino cherry. And then uh, just a big old mug with hot water and peach green tea. So, Hey, I mean, that's that's pretty reasonable. And it sounds like, I mean, I know what you're doing. And so I understand. <laughs> and uh, we'll, we'll give you this week respite. Yeah. Because the next couple of weeks, we're going to be paying off the Deadpool. So, <sighs> you know. It's going to be hopefully mostly towards your end. Like this. Week. <laughs> I mean, this week I've got something in the Deadpool, but it's fine. Yeah, yeah it's uh, I, I definitely understand. And uh, we'll just we'll just catch up next week. It'll be fun. Perfect. So I'm having a whiskey sour this week, which, you know, classic. We've talked about a dozen times. Just fantastic level headed stuff. Easy to make. Mm-hmm. And then I'm following that up with a Nishamini Creek. The Shape of Hops to Come, I believe it's from Pennsylvania. Yep, Croydon, Pennsylvania. 
and uh, it's very good. I feel like you butchered both the name of the brewery and the city it's from, so. I mean, how do you, Croydon, (laughs) C-R-O-Y-D-O-N, Croydon, maybe? Maybe. Yeah, probably. Something like that. Maybe. You're you're right to butcher the name. It's a a stupid name. Also, (laughs) what is that creek? Neshamony? It's N-E-Neshamony? Neshamony, maybe. Neshamony? That's too many mushmouth syllables there. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> we're gonna move on. So uh, b- let's get into last week's predictions uh, first. Before we go into the predictions, we do have a call on the Deadpool this week. The tally on the Deadpool who died, PJ uh, Roke did. Roke did. So that means the poet. Drink. The poet. The spracest poet is no more. The spracest poet is indeed no more so i've got my little half shot here mm. by the way the half shots are going to be very bad over the next two weeks oh god so good i'm so excited it's not really spoilers it's just like it, even if you're like for me if you said that someone is alive and they are alive i have to take the shot you know how bad that's going to be for the last episode like <laughs> well i said I, I said very few people would be alive though so there's that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <sighs> it's true just had to take down the whiskey before I could respond. Woo, hot stuff. But yeah, geez, it's uh, it's going to be a week. You so we do have a couple of predictions. To go you through. heard it here first, folks. Crossland heats <laughs> up his whiskey before he drinks it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I, I think. Meant, microwave, right? 30, uh, 30 no, seconds. Stove top. Ah, stove top. And go. then microwave. You take oh, the metal pan and you put it in the microwave. Please don't do that. <laughs> Nobody do that, please. Oh, good. So uh, predictions from last week. <laughs> uh, we only had two to talk about that we have to talk about this week. So the first one is, so next week, big war? Uh, yes, big war, which I'd say that's pretty true. Yeah, no, it's very true. It was a stupid question. I'm drinking for it. So yep. I, I deserve this. Yeah, you did. But you did drink for one of these previously that um, you were wrong on what the next step prediction was. and only felt fair to... Mm-hmm. Uh, Pay myself back in kind. So, next prediction. How are Roke and Antonia doing after next week? Um, and you said? I, I said that they'd get chewed out by Octavia. But apparently that guess is always wrong. So, maybe she gives him a cookie. <laughs> and that was also wrong. Roke, yeah. yeah. Uh, Roke died cookie-less. And uh, Antonia turned into a pansy. So, <laughs> true. Literally losing there. the fight. So this is that double oak bourbon that I've talked about a couple times on here. Ooh. I really like it. Every time you've talked about it, it sounds tasty. Mm-hmm. Nice. So we uh, we don't exactly know. You know, there's no end to Antonia here, of course. Um, there is still the possibility of one of your answers. Yeah, I did say after but... next week, but we're going to delete it. But yeah, so Romulus is not going to get to exact his revenge, it appears, this week. No. So, I mean. Big. Big boom. We don't know. We don't know that Romulus couldn't come into a room with Roke's corpse and stab it a couple times. That fulfills the blood feud, right? <laughs> True. So with that, let's get into the chapters. We get into our breakdown here. Chapter 43. Here again. I think the title chapter is so clear because it evokes something that this chapter is peppered with the sense that we've literally been here before. This is like the here and back again of title chapters because we're walking through a lot of the same beginning of combat war motions with golds. Right. But I mean, 
it's cool to see again. It's cool to hear a little bit more of the actual like narration from the from the whites as opposed to the description of what they look like. Mm-hmm. Because we didn't have to get that description again. So yeah, we get like an alternate angle, and I think what's interesting is the first time that we heard this, it was from Darrow's perspective as a gold partaking in it all, and now he's kind of outside of it, listening and watching from the sidelines. Yeah, who who are they blessing? In this, is it just the golds or is it everyone? It's it's specifically a gold ritual where they're like they cut their palms open ultimately and they're talking about them taking forth in battle and remembering mm. the iron golds and the conquering and everything else. It seems kind of in weird in weird taste at this point. It does. It does. And I think that that's also what's interesting about the other golds that, you know, Darrow kind of comments on seeing him wandering around and why he leans on having Sefi around him, even though he doesn't necessarily need her, is that ultimately she's a tool for control by fear for those who won't follow willingly. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, that makes total (laughs) sense. That's not to say that, like, the people that we see in this scene are like Mustang, Cavax Daxo. It's all the all the big classic names, you know? Right. I assume there's a lot more, though. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there are more. There are also probably more circles out and about that are, you know, various squads and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I think what's also, I mean, it's random here, but we also get the name for Thistle, which is Syrian Ow something or other. But it doesn't doesn't matter. I mean, Thistle is uh, Syrania Ow Tannis. Tannis, that's it. Uh, Yeah. And, you know, we know her name now, which I guess is a thing. Not that yeah. it immediately matters, but yeah, she's it a, doesn't matter. She's a sad sack of shit that we're we're hunting is what we're hearing. We are on the hunt. Yep. So from there, we move on. There, there are a number of other things that are going on in the scene, of course, as Darrow is walking by, arranging and kind of seeing and feeling shame. We figure out the name of Mustang ship as well, which is called the Deja Thoris. Did you know this one? I knew it was a reference. I didn't know what the reference was. Mm, womp womp. Womp womp. Um, th- that means you drink. <laughs> um, is the this... only drinks I get to give you. What? Yeah, so that was my question. Just to, since I only have the one pour, is this the only thing? This is the only okay. the only other well, thing I for will, the rest of the, I will down it the whole bit. Mm. So for those who don't know... The Deja Thoris is named after the Martian princess from John Carter. John Carter, the crappy Disney sci-fi movie, sure, but also John Carter, the book, the old science fiction book, which explored Mars in a, in a different way. So before mm. it became a Disney property, it was a 60s sci-fi property. Interesting. Yeah. It was a, it was a big like pulp, pulp paperback, pulp story. Anyway, Deja Thoris. Interesting that it's named that. Similar Martian princess gives it gives it a nice kind of theme behind the two of them. And, you know, game respect game. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's fair. Yeah. Game, the, game the respect game. <laughs> game right. respect game, you know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the the send off with Cavax is perhaps my favorite of the entire chapter. The entire moment just feels so sincere and grounded and just a wonderful conversation. It doesn't feel like he's insane. We get so much character here. It feels I mean, like we he get feels so a much little insane. He might die. Well, he's got kind of the big booming laughy attitude about him, but I don't know if he's insane. I mean, he's he's fishing out jelly beans again. He's uh, out of his armor. Yeah. Yeah. That. And you're saying that like it's not crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's fair. 
You know, good good point. Good point. Called it was it called it Sophocles Benedictine. <laughs> True. Yes. It's pretty funny. He is he is definitely doting on his fox again for the first time in a while, right? Mm-hmm. That we've really kind of seen that. And it was was it Thraxa that put them there? I think so. I think so. His, one of his daughters, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And then he just has an outburst where he just says fishing. It feels like he's kind of interrupting dead air. You know, like he's he's going from like a moment of like talking a bunch and talking with Darrow and he's like, you know, I'd really, you know, fishing. I'd really like to, you know, <laughs> take you take you fishing. Do you do Red's fish or something like that? Like, it's just yeah. very, it, it feels like you're a racist uncle trying to come down to the level <laughs> a little bit. I'll bring the whiskey, I say. He points a finger at me. Yes. And we will get or we will be drunk together. Like, <laughs> it's just <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I it's just great. It's just a, a great moment with Cavax. Absolutely. But to say that it doesn't make him seem like a crazy old man is stretching it a bit. No, OK, not a deranged <laughs> old man. You're okay. right. A crazy old man. Not deranged. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, he's uh, he's definitely got, you know, his ticks. It's pretty funny, though. Mm-hmm. And then we end the chapter with a farewell kiss from Mustang, sending us careening into the next chapter. Ah, fucking finally, they can stop beating around the, like, will they or won't they bush again, you know? (laughs) I thought we were done with this after the first book. Yeah, (laughs) that's fair. There, there are obviously reasons that there was like beating around the bush. Oh, I think some of, of course, that's Darrow's, but, but like, yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah, we do, we do get some nice closure here. It'd be sad if something happened. Hmm. 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 Was she in the packs? I don't know. No, she was floating on the Dejah Thoris without power. Actually, oh, right. but yeah, yeah, that doesn't that doesn't bode well for her either, though. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's not a good thing. That's actually something I just realized I didn't stick in the predictions anyway. <laughs> so. We'll move on to chapter 44. So what I find really interesting about these two chapters being butted up next to each other is it feels like the first part of this chapter really could have been combined with the other chapter because of kind of the here again mentality of it all. Yeah. Meaning like the sort of war ritual and things like that. And the very first like couple pages of this chapter feel like they could have been there. But I kind of like the chapter separation to break them out as their own thing because it is the first chapter is our are Darrow's people, yes, they're golds, yes, they're people who support him, but they're not his rituals. They're not really his people, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's fair. It's an it's an interesting symbolic break. Right. Yeah, that's true. I think, I think that split, it, it's a split in his sort of thought process, too. Mm-hmm. Like, at the end of 43, he's, I don't know, sending off Cavax, and then beginning of 44, he's getting getting ready for war it's yeah that's that's also very true he's sending off everyone else to their ships at the end of 43 right so i think the i think the chapter break makes sense yeah i and i i'm not saying that it doesn't make sense i totally think it makes sense in the context it's just it's interesting that they're so close to each other and yet defined by this break between the two of them mm-hmm. right and i think that's why you really get it is sort of the thematic obviously the physical division of some of these people leaving the ship but the howlers are also aren't with darrow we don't know that right away. We know that they're on comms, but they're not nearby. Right. So it's it's an interesting, interesting tidbit here that I find a good decision on Pierce's part to kind of make this, you know, metaphorical division. 
Beyond that, we get flashes of Orion, a conversation with the Howlers, of course, like we've kind of preluded to and talked about. That is really great to hear, like everyone's voice, like screw or clown has a whole thing about like sh- like farting in his suit and it's smelling like shit. And they're like, no, 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 that's just you. Sefi doesn't know how to work the technology. And yep. so she's screaming in her helmet and like has to bend over so Holiday can fix it. So she isn't screaming at everyone. Mm-hmm. There are yeah. just some like genuinely funny moments in here tucked inside. Yeah, absolutely. It, it makes it makes you realize how young everyone is here. Yeah, it's so important I feel to like I, it's so easy to forget. I feel like we forget it very easily how how young all these people are. I don't know about Sefi. Like, Sefi's just kind of, I don't know. She's like somebody plucked out of the Middle Ages and told like, all right, here's a spacesuit. Yeah, no joke. And that's that's also really well. All of the, the entire like undertone of this entire section that we talk about, too, is laced with the obsidians being being inexperienced in the situations, right? So they really don't have a good grasp of what they're doing. Holiday's done her best to train them as much as possible, as quickly as possible. But they don't fucking know. They're they're shocked to be off of the ice caps. And yet here they are, like, out in the the rim of space, several planets away. Yeah. Still trying to figure shit out. Like, can you imagine? Like, like you said, plucking someone out of the Middle Ages and just dropping them in uh into a spaceship. Like, that's nuts. Yeah, that'd be uh, a little bit jarring, to say the least. Yeah, maybe a little bit. <laughs> Roke, Roke does a, a perfect move, I'd say, after sort of observing all the obsidians and just turns off the artificial gravity. Like, Yeah. How are they going to deal with it? It's clever. And I think we, we should talk about that more when we get to kind of some of the battle sections. But I think that it's fascinating that Darrow analyzes the difference in forces where in total the entire fleet of the society has maybe 7,000 obsidians in it and yeah. Darrow's has a hundred thousand obsidians. And that's really why they won. Yeah. That's <laughs> because of the invasion forces on ships. Like who such raw power. Just yeah. That alone. Yeah. I, I think that that gets kind of in, in a lot of the discussions and analyzation of this that I've seen, I think that gets undercounted more than anything else. I think a lot of people are like, Oh, the tactical superiority. And it's like, no, no, no. Textually, they admit that the obsidians were very important to yeah. the entire thing. They are pivotal, I would yeah. say. Yeah. A 90% lift over your opponent is a big deal. <laughs> right. So I, I love the, you know, Darrow says no speech, right? And he's like, no, no speech. And he does give something very brief. You know, he's not looking for the the sort of inspiration they pulled on the poem, of course, that we talked about a couple of episodes ago at length. Um, it's like, no, like never fade into the dying of the light. Um fucking Severo being an asshole but he does give kind of a brief speech here which i think is great Uh, whatever happens remember we're the lucky ones we get to make a difference today but you're my family so be brave protect each other and come home yep it's i mean it's it's short it's good and i think it you know gets the message across that he wants to his friends yeah yeah it definitely does and i think um the uh, now knowing knowing the fact that they're gone they're not they're not there anyway tells me they probably had a speech of some sort or something a little bit more formal before their departure but the just his presence in the that sort of hollow conference was kind of set up as a a bit of a focus like a a signal that like all right we're we're doing this shit we're we're getting ready and that's all that they really need 
they they know well enough what's going on, but it, it keeps everyone on task. You know, I think that that was kind of the point with the howlers. Yeah, I man, I don't disagree in the slightest. I think that it is, you know, obviously to have Darrow on the call. Right. So like you're you're in a Zoom call hanging out and uh, getting ready with your buds and then your your big old boss boy joins. You're definitely going to like <laughs> big old boss boys. Put on your put on your belt, stand up straight, right? Like even if it's just a Zoom call, you're you're ready to go, and uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that that shows here in this little section. Yeah, sure. a little bit. It, it it shows that they respect him, but it also kind of brings back into the uh, into focus the designation that he was given with he and several gave each other as Howler One and Howler Two. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, technically. Jero's still leading, but he's he's more a part of the group than the leader of the group. And I think that that kind of solidifies that as well. Yeah. And I mean, the this little tiny speech that he gives also places an emphasis on family. Right. And that is something that they made a big deal about in the Howler Oath. Right. Definitely. Speaking of oaths, like we, we talk about a different oath later that they definitely none of them have kept. So true. Having yeah. having. That being, if, if I'm being too vague, that being the one of the peerless scarred. That's a great point. I, I actually had never thought about that, that Darrow effectively betrayed one oath for the other. But so did all of the other howlers, here. except for some of the new ones yeah. that joined that aren't true. golds, but they yeah, all wow. did. No, that's that's definitely true. Like, not only have they betrayed that oath, but they, like, very textually are against the society, which is very much what that oath is for. But they are of the same fearsome elite warrior class yeah. which is interesting as a comparison mm-hmm. huh great I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that well so you did now yeah. thanks to good old pj the savior well, of the podcast and the person who really understands what's going on you know it you, you bring perspective <laughs> pj sometimes on shit that like my brain skipped over <laughs> and other times i'm like was i that paranoid when i was reading this book <laughs> for the first time and you know it's an interesting dichotomy <laughs> Ah, uh, yeah, you know, I, I appreciate that you keep showing up, but I, I think I could handle this, Crossland, really, if you want to take a week <laughs> off or two. I, you know, <laughs> you had your week <laughs> of booze exposure, and I had my week of no booze by comparison, so <laughs> I'm pleasantly sitting where I am. Good, so good. We're good. All right. Yeah, no, <laughs> Perfect. We're, we're at a good point. We're at a good point. Yeah, we're at a so, good place. Let's keep going. We move on from the the moment here on the bridge. Victra has snuck her way onto Darrow's ship. She was supposed to be on a different ship, the Mycos. And by the way, I could not find anything relating to Mycos at all in any of the research. So if anyone has anything, please let me know. But I, I searched for, I swear to God, way too long. And so she was supposed to be on that ship of course she's not she snuck onto darrow's to make sure that she could be you know kind of his right hand his guard wanted to make sure that he stayed fine but as they take off into the depth of combat she says a line that should ring a little bit familiar perhaps which is once more onto the breach she says it's it's a poetic reference that we've already broken down in reference to henry v but it bears mentioning It's also an almost somber feel here because tactics is missing. The last time that we heard this was at the beginning of Golden Sun when they were going to the Academy. And so it's it's an interesting callback. And I find it also interesting here that or that Victra is the one who calls out that Tactus would have loved this at the beginning of this chapter as well. And so it kind of feels like we could get brief flashes of like 
what would this situation be if Tactus was around? Right. They talked from about, Victra. I, I did love them talking about things that Tactus loved and didn't love. Final little bit on this chapter before we move to the last one. Darrow gives a speech in this fucking chapter anyway, which I find hilarious because he's like no speech and then ends up giving a, a great proclamation of freedom here and now for the colors, for the tide of humanity. It just drips like it was pulled from Hobbes's Leviathan. I think it's different concept of I think I think a speech to the Howlers is a, is a completely different thing than a speech to mm-hmm. the entire fleet. So I don't I don't find it that weird. But yeah, no, I uh, agreed. Agreed. It's it's almost necessary for him to do something to lead out to the entire speed or to the entire fleet. But it is it feels kind of I don't know funny within the same. We'll assume if this were filmed like within the same ten minutes, he goes from. You know, no speech being made fun of for not giving a speech to giving a speech. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah. Man, yeah. So <laughs> chapter 45. This is actually how PJ and I communicate most of the time. It's just. It, meh, yeah, meh, 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 meh. So chapter 45, the Battle of Ilium. We move into the next little bit. We're prepped for a massive, incredible space battle here. The scale of everything is just ridiculous. And this is actually a chapter in rereads and everything else that I forget how cool it is, but it is so good. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's pretty fucking cool. It, it's, we say it all the time and I prefer it. I preface it this way all the time, but it is so cinematic and I'm, I'm so excited to see it translated to the screen. Just this whole, it, this whole scene. It's crazy to me that this series exists and Disney's still trying to make Star Wars movies. Like, just pivot. It's brand recognition, though. Yeah, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not looking to start an argument over the the merits of business about Disney's decisions. All that I'm saying is, you have a wonderful story here. You're very good at adapting stories. Do this, but also Disney probably shouldn't be doing our stuff because they generally don't. So give it to HBO. HBO, fucking pick this up. What are you doing? You want to compete with Disney? Here it is. Yep. Yep. There you go. Perfect. It it just seems, it seems so obvious going through this and like, sure the, the, this is a meta conversation. I think the trouble is, is the first book is good. It's not as good as the rest of this is. Yeah. By a long shot. (laughs) By a long shot. (laughs) By a long shot. Yeah. Now, I mean, Props to you. Glad you made it to this point. It's always interesting when books have weak first or when series of weak first books and like I see them get picked up to screen and I'm like, huh, okay. will you get renewed for your second season or not? And that's kind of my semi fear with this would be like you have to have someone booked in for like three seasons and it's going to be on the second and third season where people really like it or you have to fix shit in the first book. I think I think they could fix shit. I think they'd be able to. I honestly, I think the first story, the first book, um, would work better as a TV show. You're probably right. It probably translates to screen better than I'm giving it credit for. Yeah. Because you could you could fix and adapt things and paste it out mm-hmm. as you needed to. There are a number of like scenes that are shortcutted into paragraphs that could be entire. Yeah. Episodes. I, I, I think I think the shortcomings of the first book are less about the story itself and more about the the writing and the confidence of Pierce Brown. Sure. So sure. With that back into this fucking ridiculous space battle. Right. Mm -hmm. So, man, you shit on me in our pre notes section here a little bit. And I thought that I was I was going to go into this whole thing. 
but we've already talked about it and I didn't realize like there are two different references here that we've already talked about, (laughs) but I didn't understand. I didn't draw the connection that you did and great work, of course, in uh, in our preamble. So the Battle of Trafalgar is referenced here and that's a battle from the Napoleonic Wars. It was a very big battle when Darrow is citing the sort of training that both he and Roke have from the Academy and in the variety of different forms of warfare from Alexander the Battle of Trafalgar, etc. And I didn't know what people knew about this in case you didn't pick it up before. It's a naval battle that was decidedly created when the British navals that decidedly created the British naval supremacy for a long time. And it was during the Napoleonic Wars against the French. Just a quick summary, bit of information. The what was really interesting is that Horatio Nelson actually changed the the tactics of ship warfare as we think of them. When you and I think of, well, not you and I, but maybe you, me and the the audience and I think of this, we might think of like Pirates of the Caribbean when ships like drove up next to each other and shot each other and, you know, like raced past each other. But that was actually very uncommon back in the day. It was more common for ships to line up and then basically test their cannons against each other. So when you giant naval battles... You'd basically have a line of 20 plus ships just lined up straight firing against each other and whoever sunk more ships won. What Horatio Nelson did, Nelson is the reference to Golden Sun, is he actually started the more modern understanding of naval warfare, which is to bring your ships with a narrow profile up to the other ships and then open your cannons once you were closer to give you kind of the advantage of proximity, shock, and speed yeah so uh i'm pretty sure you went through at least a pared down version of that story in golden sun when roke was called nelson reincarnate but i don't remember exactly what you had said but i'm pretty sure it was about that battle i think it was a lot of assumptions i think we made some vague assumptions that it was horatio nelson yeah you made an assumption you're like i'm not positive but i think it's probably talking about horatio nelson i remember that the but. Yeah, the only other like noteworthy thing here is that the British won with inferior numbers. It was only they only won because of different tactics, which is also what happens here. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Who's Nelson now, bitch? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's it's not Roke. It's, the answer yeah. is not Roke. The answer is, but not he was Roke. like he said he was called Nelson reincarnate uh, throughout Golden Sun. So like he was definitely innovative and clearly dominant. I mean, there's there's something to be said about the description that we get when we finally do stumble into Roke and he's orchestrating a battle. He's doing it from a distance. It's what they talked about in the first book where he was this, the the poet with a grand idea who wanted to be a politico, who didn't want to be involved with battle. And so instead what he found is he found a spot and a place where he wasn't the soldier, the marshal that Darrow is. He's instead a distant tactician, kind of mm-hmm. an in-between. It's interesting. Yeah. Commander so, of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. What'd you make of the battle and Darrow's move to charge Roke's flagship? So... It, it's been kind of driven into the ground how great of a tactician Roke is, but this is the first time we've seen him be bested. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think it's a lot to do with the fact that Darrow knows the intelligence of both Roke and Octavia mean that nothing that they do can be anything they've done before. They have to, they have to approach this with pure surprise. So mm-hmm. this entire sequence is darrow kind of flexing his tactician muscles which is kind of the first time we've seen it in that respect to this to this scale we saw it a little bit 
in the first book with the dead horses, which they're talking about a ton in this chapter or this this section, probably the next few chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's kind of sprinkled throughout these chapters for yeah, sure. Exactly. So little dead horse flakes. <laughs> Jesus. Sprinkled throughout the chapters. Sprinkle horses. Sprinkled dead horses. Yep. Here I am. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's true. And it's, it is very interesting to see the sort of difference between Darrow and Roke's leadership. I mean, Darrow is basically trusting everyone to operate on their own. And Roke is very much in control. With the exception of he gave some control to Antonia. We know how that pays off. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so... I think what was really interesting about the charge of of Darrow's ship, the Pax, of course, aptly named here, into everything else is that you know the Pax is charging headlong. We know that they're operating with the skeleton crew because of some of the commentary earlier, which is hinted at. Mm-hmm. But I think the death of the blues is the most interesting thing here. My helmsman, Arnis, has a seizure as the engines are shredded. And just kind of the way that all of them disintegrate as the various pieces of the ship get blown apart that they're in charge of. They lose engines. They lose all of these different components. And they're hit as though they were personally hit with bullets. I... In the brain. Fucking loved it. I loved just hearing how that works, how the how the connection works, and how overloading that connection can actually cause someone's brain to stop working. Like, <laughs> a little cold, maybe, or just kind of not emotional like i i understand that they're actually people but i thought it was really fucking cool yeah i i mean it does a great job of communicating something that is so different it feels like people dying in the matrix you know it, it has a very kind of unique feel where like you know you see the bodies thrashing and then they're gone mm-hmm. and they die it has that kind of same sort of moment or element to it and it's yeah. it's definitely super interesting that there's effectively these people that are that plugged in yeah, definitely. Yeah, true. Um, I wonder I wonder if that's ever used as an indication of where problems are. Like what bl- <laughs> what blues are spasming. All right. That's a live diagnostic no <laughs> joke. That's actually crazy. Yeah. Good call. That's um that's a great point. I feel like <laughs> they'd have sensors that could do the same thing and like send a notification, like, hey, this thing's fucked up, but you know, spasming blue people works well. <laughs> It's so sad when you put it that way. <laughs> so we we move on from the spasming blue people who are very sadly dying because Darrow is charging his ship in a suicide rush, basically. The Pax, no less. The friend to take the blows to save Darrow is committing again a similar act. It's uh it's definitely something to to speculate or not speculate, but like go, good good work, Pierce. Way to way to circle that theme around. But Roke's spracism when he shows up right on the hollow screen, just his spracism is so bold and brazen here, right? It's just we will make this word work. We will. We're gonna fucking coin this phrase. It's not. It's not a good phrase to coin. I guess. Like, it's not good to be responsible for this. But yeah, but maybe it is. I don't know. Home run. So Roke's. It is. It is a home run. Roke's spracism here of seeing Victra. And Darrow next to each other and addressing Victra is the biggest fuck you. It's it's just it's so clear. It's visual. It's a line of dialogue. It is that that spracism showing on display fully where he does not respect Darrow's color at all, his place in society. It's like it's kind of a lot to take in to some degree. I do wonder what that conversation would have been like if 
Victra wasn't there. Because I feel like it wouldn't have been that much different. Yeah. Mm, I don't Maybe. know. I, I think there would have been a little bit of more like, I'm higher than you, holier than thou speak. There already was, though. That still there existed. Was a, yeah, there was there was a nature of that for sure. But I think it would have been I think it would have been worse. OK, so this is going to be it's going to be a metaphor, you know, modern comparison that is just completely lost on you. But do you know who Thrawn is in Star Wars? Mm, nope. Okay, so he's he's a blue dude who stands very tall. He's very strategic. And in this moment, I, I very much have the same imagination of Thrawn, hands behind his back, tied, looking down. He's got kind of this judgmental glare. Okay. It feels very much like that kind of moment for the people who know Thrawn. Um, for PJ, for you, just imagine, like, I, I don't know, space, right, spracist Eisenhower <laughs> staring down at you. <laughs> Like kind of like that, but blue. <laughs> All right. Like that's that's basically the vision that I get. It's a very it's a very similar thing. It Smart dude, good. all told, but definitely is a problem. Anyway, it feels very reminiscent of kind of the the same ideas, same ideals here. Okay, that so, makes sense. With that, we move into chapter forty six, Hell Diver. Chapter forty six, Hell Diver. But then emerges the real plan, which of course we've hinted at here, <laughs> which is. For Darrow to abandon the ship, he's going to evacuate and they're going to jump in as the title preludes into Clondrills. A handful of them are, of course. I find it interesting, too, that this is actually the third title in each book that we've seen titled Helldiver, which is a great call out, of course. It makes sense, though. It Mm -hmm. it lends itself to a whole lot of different meanings. it, It works well. Yeah, I mean, chap- or in book one, it was literally defining the term Helldiver. In book two, it was describing kind of the bold action that a Helldiver takes and like the risks. And now in book three, it is those two things combined into this moment in which it's a bold action and he's actually being a Helldiver. Right. Exactly. Which is pretty fucking cool. It is pretty fucking cool. Yeah. In the early parts of this chapter, something that I... Haven't heard Victra say before. She refers to Darrow as baby boy, I think twice. Do you think that is any sort of callback to his like red number slash cell number? That kind of looks like a little baby. Little, little baby. Yeah. Or is it just a coincidence? You know, I think maybe it's a combination of the two. I want to say that like it's baby boy could be like an age thing more than it's just a coincidence. But also, I think that it's a if if you're like paying attention as a fan, like the little baby number, which it's kind of it's kind of like rubs. Has that that ever been confirmed in any sort of way, or is it not confirmed but definitely commented on? Let's let's put it this way: if I if I were in a room and I got to ask Bruce Brown the question, that would be one of them that I asked. Okay, just like as a trivia kind of a thing, you know. Interesting. Where that number come from? Gotcha. Yeah, for sure, but. Definitely interesting. So we get a rallying cry here from from Sefi, of course, before they decide to make all the diving action that we're going to talk about for the rest of the episode. The entire rest of the episode. We're not going to talk about anything else except for the Hell Divers from now on, for the record. Like the rest of this episode. That's it. That's it. Buckle up. No, just kidding. Hirg uh, <laughs> la Ragnar. Hirg? Hirg la Hirg la Ragnar. 
means Ragnar lives, which is a wonderful tribute and a great parallel to Persephone slash EO here. I, I think that it's well, well managed. Yeah, I, I think I'd take it a step further and call it not even just a parallel, but an actual like mirroring of it because the obsidians really have no reason to have a connection to EO or Persephone. Um, But Ragnar essentially stood for the exact same thing. So using him as the, the rallying token um, doesn't change what they're fighting for, but gives them something that they can actually hold on to and relate with. So I think it makes, makes total sense to use that. And every time they say it, I just miss Ragnar that much more. Yeah. 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 Man. But he's alive. It says so right there. I I mean, (laughs) in spirit. Mm, It doesn't say in spirit. It just says that he lives. It's like, and with you, and with your spirit. (laughs) That's exactly what this call refrain is. It's... It is both, it's, it is a rallying cry, it is effective, and it's interesting in the way that it obviously harkens back, and it is that connective tissue, because they don't, they haven't had enough time to be exposed to Yeo's dream, Persephone's song, like all of the other low colors have inside of the open society, not the closed sectors that variously exist. So they're, they're controlled and removed from the scenario, and as such, this mm-hmm. is their rallying cry, and that makes sense. Right. Yeah, for sure. So after that, we get some pretty great detail on a on a really interesting, you know, mechanism. Yeah, yeah, we do. It's it's kind of cool, exciting. like grasping hands, the cockpit where each elbow would be, the dozen drill bits on the deck where the fingers would reach. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm gonna ask? You know what I'm gonna say? Would where are those you, fingers uh, reaching? <laughs> <laughs> What do you think of the claw drill description? Uh, about fucking time. Like, yeah, two books too late, man. No, it was great. It was it was fun to really hear that get fleshed out. Hear that. Look at the true scale of it. I know they mentioned it at one point. I think earlier this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being able to see them, see them all in their in their full size described was really really fucking cool so i i am satisfied (laughs) finally it and within reason you're not wrong and and that's something that like on the front end of the series is hard to say because like i know that it's coming i know that's coming and i know in our earliest episodes i was like it's coming pj i know it's coming yeah i know that chris brown figures out how to do this you just 27 episodes later something like that (laughs) well if you cut out the interludes (laughs) and whatnot it's like 20 but yes yeah all right that's Mm -hmm. not helpful in the moment yeah well right (laughs) right which is why you know to to some degree what's interesting is that pierce brown yes is a new writer but pierce brown has one of the most unique writing styles of any writer i've ever read he truly has a different voice inside of characters in people's heads and it's Mm -hmm. it's really strange and it's really awesome in a weird way um yeah i mean i've I've read a lot of like self-published flash fiction and other things like that and some of that can be closer to this but it's never as good it's never anywhere near as good but anyway regardless i'm so happy that here we get the live birth of the claw drill in all of its majestic glory mm, 
I don't know if you'd call it majestic. Savage? <laughs> yeah. Kind of savage. Brutal. Right. Yeah, brutal. I, I feel like I use the word brutal too much in this podcast to describe some of the things that Pierce Brown does. Um, yeah, but it, it, it feels correct. The word the word brutal is definitely better. And we'll lean on that mm-hmm. more. But, yeah. Yeah. I, I love the quote that follows that, which is to say that he's, he's reflecting on Roke's perception of what's going to happen throughout the conflict here. He says, I'm a bloody damn hell diver with an army of mildly psychotic women behind me and a fleet of state of the art warships crewed by pissed off pirates, engineers, techs and former slaves. And he thinks he knows how to fight me. It's it's just pitched as this like, dude, you thought you knew me as a gold and you have no fucking clue what I'm capable of because you, you don't actually know the real me, which also for the record is Darrow's fault. The reason yeah. Roke doesn't know the real him is also Darrow's fault. That's why you can't predict him. So, right. I but I, I think that's... I'm mixed. That goes back to the point of, like, Roke is very much so in tune with what he's done in the past. So he's making mm-hmm. making plans and strategies based on what he thinks is going to happen. But if, you, if you're approaching every fight with a completely new set of ideas, like, how, how are you going to fucking predict that? Like, how are right. you going to fight against that? It's... It's literally impossible for uh, for Roke to really anticipate these moves. And to I'm curious, to what degree do you feel like that's underhanded writing, like just giving your protagonist the advantage, or or like is it just <clears throat> purely the way that Darrow is advantageous in these situations? I think it can be a little bit of both. I, I think I think this this justifies the sort of invincible protagonist a little bit. The plot you know? armor. Yeah. 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 It justifies that a little bit by giving, giving solid reason and actually fleshing it out. Right. Yeah. I, I'm with you. And I think that that makes sense. I think that it is painting it in a way where I, I think that Pierce does a very careful job in the books so far, making it not feel like there is any kind of deus ex machina going on. And I'll point out one example a little bit later in the episode, too. But he very carefully plants or lays out enough explanation where you don't feel like anything is completely out of right or left field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. there, there's there's breadcrumbs all over the place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the claw drill in space section is just something wholly unique. It's ripped from the mind of Pierce Brown. And it's just this thing that is unfound anywhere else this idea of this mining drill flying out of a ship into the air being propelled like a halo chopper through space all every everyone else like eating into the other ship going through a hull that is built to withstand what is considered like a normal craft that might pierce the hull and deploy soldiers it's so much more than anything else that i've seen or read in sci-fi it's wonderful yeah. And right. and they, they do a good job of pointing out the fact that this not being an actual class of ship doesn't really show up on any sort of radars or sensors or anything as as a ship. It would probably just show up as a an arm shaped pre- piece of debris. Like that's pretty genius. That's pretty pretty nuts, but it makes total sense. Yeah, they're also looking for like radioactive signatures, right? Like that's the other part of this is they're right. they're looking for different kind of signals or signatures, and this doesn't give any of those off. So you know, like they've thought of 
most everything in terms of instrumentation, but they didn't think of the literal things that are under their feet most of the day. And that also has its own kind of like dramatic irony here. Especially after it was used to, to save Darrow before. Yeah. Right. At the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. Great. Great point. Just like, why didn't you think about that? Well, we didn't think about that because we didn't expect them to be deployed in space. Well, <laughs> they did need quite a bit of retrofitting in order to get that True. to happen. So yeah. those, those were remarked upon. And the dramatic tension that happens as Darrow's getting shot at, including one of the four other drills being shot down, is, uh, is quite a bit. Mm-hmm. There's also a clever piece of momentum building over the course of this entire section that is just well-layered tension. Darrow commenting on Severo, still hiding, still waiting, and just kind of, it's lingering in the backdrop, just waiting to pounce. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you never know when it's going to happen. Did you Did you think it was going to come earlier or later than it did? Um, Later. I, 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 I thought, or... When it did, like I, when it came, yeah, I was, I, I that felt like a good, good timing. It felt like it made sense to put it there. I figured it was some sort of they, they dropped so many hints about the dead horse thing, having it be sort of a, a trap to be sprung upon fleeing or upon moving past a certain trigger point. I, it made sense. I felt like the way it, it is was interesting. Paced. Like, I, I agree with you. I think, I think that's interesting when you think about kind of the the meta context of what you can get away with in a book, right? Do you think Pierce could have gotten away with not talking about Severo for this entire chapter and then just springing it at the end and not have it be like, oh, of course you were there versus like the casual mention feels like it sprinkles it better. Yeah. Yeah. I think you needed to mention him without it, without it feeling cheap. Yeah. To kind of make it feel present, make it feel intentional Mm -hmm. as opposed to, well, how am I going to deal with this problem? Oh, Severo's there. Yeah, as though he suddenly appeared out of thin air, which we right. all know he did not. Right. I think it works. The way the way that it works is the way that it should have been done. So Darrow crashes into the Moonbreaker, into Roke's Moonbreaker, and is charring through several layers of ship, just eating it all up after being shot outside and everything else. It's, mm-hmm. it's broken up and still able to chew through the, the rubble. He lands and chews through an entire Praetor... Like Gray Praetor Squad, and there's one gray person that remains. And he raises his scorcher, and Darrow reacts without thinking, puts his razor in the side of his heart, and makes him a carcass. Fucking oof. Like yeah. that is it's it's just a single person, of course. Everyone else, like everyone else got literally like chewed to bits and was instantly incinerated. But and what do you think's worse? What's the worst death? Man, I don't think the razor's that bad now that you put it that way. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> the razor's quick, you know? Yeah, but, but he had to watch everyone go through that. His okay, entire yeah. team. You're, you're talking about perspective. I, I was extracting perspective. Oh, it's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the worst death is, well, the worst perspective is definitely the guy who gets stabbed by Darrow. Um, <laughs> but also, fair. if you watched everyone else get eaten up by the, your fucking drill, you've got a level of commitment to pull your gun on the person who did that. Yeah, that's it's like, true. Jesus, man. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. A little bit. A <laughs> little bit. A little bit. It's, uh... Yeah, the Reaper's here. Welcome. The Reaper is here, and he is gonna fucking take your heart out, literally. I, man, when they restore gravity here in his body and all the blood falls as well, like, it's cinematically gruesome, and I want it. 
mm-hmm. like there, there's a layer of of just kind of again we go back to this all the time brutality yes yeah, slurp um <laughs> it's just terrible and wonderful that i want i want to show and mm-hmm. i think that this book and the last book show it more as space game of thrones than the first book does yeah yeah i completely agree with you this is definitely a little bit more a little bit more gritty yeah and you get you get some of the like familial aspects and other things like that that just feel like they're right that there too. yeah that so too. feeds into it of course mm-hmm. the final lines of the chapter are just wonderful everyone has finally landed not everyone but most of the people have poured through darrow's or a couple of the other hell divers holes and they're landing on the Moonbreaker. And there is this layer of tension that's just building over the course of this page, just to say that the people on the ship are finally going to confront the people who've landed. And sweat drips from my spine. Fear is not real. Holiday deactivates her safety. And then again, after that, he says, fear is not real. He's just reminding himself as he goes into these situations that he's landed and that the Reaper has come and he's brought hell here with him. Mm-hmm. it's just boom we kick it off it's just so good um, so good yeah <laughs> that's a good good lead into the chapter titled hell <laughs> yeah wait when to steal my thunder there but yes <laughs> it's literally a chapter defined by fury of violence it's it's just like literally the entire thing there's just so many gory details that you could you could pick over here and pick your favorite parts what was your favorite bit uh when sefi <laughs> obliterates a gray let's see a gray's leg is slashed off by sefi and he stumbles firing his weapon into the wall she rips his head clean off from behind this is horror yeah bloody that's so good bloody day uh, man i think I, I totally agree with that. I love kind of the various the various components here of the, the sort of brutal warfare that Darrow and his team is exerting. I, I really like the corner shots that Holiday does with the gun that shoots around the corner, right? Where she just like whips it and she's able to like lay covering fire down. Mm-hmm. It's very, we, we've talked about this before in relation to Holiday and Trig, but it's very wanted. Like it feels, yeah, it feels very directly out of that sort of frame of reference and... It's great in um, in context, but I, I really kind of like the idea that, of course, like a sci-fi gun could bend around a corner and fucking shoot. Like they would shoot the gun instead of the person. Like that's the next step here. But it it is an interesting tactic. And to see kind of that deployed here isn't so much the my favorite part of violence in the chapter, but my favorite part of kind of layout. Yeah, it's also the some of the few sci-fi weaponry descriptions we get. Other than yeah. the razor. Yes. Yeah. It's substantial for sure. We get kind of the definition. We understand that she has ammo in her backpack that automatically feeds into her gun through her suit. Like that's a, that's a whole thing. So it feels very sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Exactly. We, we also move from the various pieces of violence. We get a clock as well, driving the urgency here. Roke has found and understands now that his ship is being invaded and understands that the only other timing that he can push forward to actually make impact on the battlefield is to kill the Dejra Thoris, which is obviously, as we've talked about before, the ship that Mustang is on. Right. Which, who knows? Maybe he still does. Could be a, could be a whole thing. 
We don't really know. We know that he didn't kill it, but it could have been could have been damaged in the explosion of the packs. I don't know. Oh man, that'd be pretty pretty tragic. While invading the ship, a number of the other greys and other other colors, of course, are invading the different corridors. They hit the communications array and they deploy a pre-recorded message of the Reaper, basically saying, "Please, dear God, rebel and help us because you should." It's the right thing to do for you. Understand some of you aren't. Any help is good, basically. Mm-hmm. And we get some of those, like some of those people work out and they, they help out and they're able to push through the corridors more effectively because of those those folks. Right. And I, I think it'd be interesting to see the actual like breakdown of how many people came to his aid and how many didn't compared to when he took the packs. Yeah. I don't know if we'll see Man. those those numbers well, at we, any point, but I don't think we're going to get those exact numbers. But I think that it's clear that there's far fewer here because this is clearly a loyal crew for the most part. In the way that they get very little assistance, right? They they get some corridors, they get some spaces, they get some ground. As opposed to playing, you know, a slow game of checkers, they're able to move more like a knight in a game of chess, but not perfectly. Yeah, that's true. So after splitting up earlier in, in the scene that I was talking about with the gun around the corners, Sefi on her own returns with the head of someone Victor recogni- recognizes. Flagius from the Institute, who is a wonderful cook. Cook. There's cook? the theme. There's, There's the, theme. the theme. Taking the cook. Taking the cook is always the most <laughs> important thing. One way or another. It's like capture the flag, but far worse. You gotta, you gotta get the cook. It's the most important if you, part. If you don't get the cook, kill the cook, take the cook from them. Really? Yes. Yes. That's the move. <laughs> I love, <coughs> I love that theme. Has that been every book so far that they talk, they steal someone's cook? Dude, many times. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not bringing this up because it's casual commentary. It's something that people actively don't talk about. Which is very clear that Pierce Brown has a thing for people who cook and no one talks about it. It's, it's right there. He, he constantly comments on people who are good cooks, like as though it's an extra character facet. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like, and they are ultimately responsible for good feelings with other characters because they're good cooks. But or sometimes they they're bad people or they have bad accents that are unintelligible. So. <laughs> All the points about cooks, right there. Right there. That's all that matters. So. Everything about them. All that matters. Everything about them. And then the metal drill is going to take far through long to cut through the double reinforced Ganymede steel that is in front of Roke's command room. They're stuck there. They're going to be there for 14 minutes. It's going to be five until the Dejah Thoris gets consumed by the fire. There are people running for them. All of the tension is building to this dramatic moment where they're going to be unable to succeed. And then, and that's where we read next week. We're going to start on you chapter 48. Dickhead. <laughs> the Imperator? No. No, no, no I'm no. kidding. You obviously should know that I'm kidding because I started off the episode. I would have hated you, though, if that's where you left me off. I would have hated the- you. There was oh. a version of this book where I did leave you there. And I was like, no, 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 we're going to go through Brooke's death at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it did leave with uh, one uneven chapter, which was the last section that we talked about, which is a little bit shorter, but worthwhile, of course, for the, the appropriate payoff. Yeah. Yeah. I think this was worth it. So, yeah. With that, we move into chapter 48, Imperator. And mm-hmm. it's it's a scene, right? The, f- the whole first page almost happens in slow motion where... Darrow and team walk in. No one realizes that they've walked in. There's a guard to the left. There's all of the people in the pit that are commanding all of the various parts of the, the blues that are commanding the various parts of the ship in the middle. There's Roke across a drawbridge of sorts across the pit. And there he is staring out into this battle that he's orchestrating, listening to Beethoven in hidden speakers. It's a brilliant scene. Yeah. It's, it is, you know, like, what's that fucking movie? Um, 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 um. Not Reservoir Dogs. What's the uh, Saints? It's the fucking brothers who Boondock shoot people Saints? in the f- Boondock Saints. It is, it is the dude sitting there orchestrating the chaos when it's not happening and like backwards creating it out of his own head while he's sitting there. Mm-hmm. It is William Defoe orchestrating that, but in real time. Like, it is... That's that's the imagination that I get on Roke side of things. Yeah, is it's good read on it. Roke is sitting there just totally engrossed in everything that's going on, and you know, jumping between scene to scene and making sure that everything's happening. There are kill squads that feel like they have another ten minutes to prepare <laughs> for Darrow and team to be breaking in, so they're taking their time, grabbing weapons, preparing, thinking about it, probably putting on their pump up song, you know, on their <laughs> iPod. Um, like you would before, you know, like a swim meet or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, same kind of idea. They're sitting in the room, like just jamming out, and uh, <laughs> and then they get fucking murdered. <laughs> yep, the Reaper has come to collect some debts. <sighs> yes. Yeah. How's it's... that song go again? Whatever it is, don't, I don't fear need... the Reaper. No, no, the oh. one that Severo sings. Oh yeah, no. Um, You'll all remember it. You should all remember it. Even though we don't. <laughs> Even though we don't. If your heart beats like a drum and your wet legs a little wet, it's because the Reapers come to collect a little debt. There we go. That's the one. <laughs> that one. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a good one. And it does feel like he's here now to enact that kind of revenge. And it's happened so quickly, right? Like, we, we get this, like, page-long glance over everything that's happening. And then... Darrow executes between Sefi and the Obsidians going left to take out the golds and everyone else who's equipping themselves and Holiday and her team to dispatch the people on the right. They kill the greys and the golds and Obsidians that are prepping on both sides really quickly. There are two golds that lie near Roke that are, you know, kind of interesting. But before we get there, we'll, we'll talk about them in a second. We look back and we see the pink who let us into the door. I think... That it it goes understated, obviously, how important this pink is in terms of the <clears throat> overall story. It's a crux here of being able to go in here and potentially save Mustang. And it kind of rings heavy the bell of freedom in the way that the story wants us to think about the message that Darrow sent over the comms, the message that Persephone is saying over how long about the golds and... In, in a lesser author's hand, it would feel maybe like it was a little bit of deus ex machina, 
Yeah, but a here, cheap. yeah, a little a little cheap. But here, it, it doesn't at all. It's it's been planted throughout. the 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 soul of rebellion is alive, and so yeah. it feels like it could happen. Yeah, it, there there was enough lead up to it, enough breadcrumbs that uh, made this payoff seem plausible. Well, and it it also feels like a perfect betrayal because Roke is being betrayed by a lower color, also if he, who he thought was his lover, who was his lover, his Rose, and. There's just kind of this perfect circle of sorts that goes on between the color society, what he expects out of someone, and the sort of revoking and denial of the chains that they've been shackled in. It's it's great, great writing of kind of the shaking and breaking of those chains. That's for you. that's actually a good point that I hadn't considered. Um, this is a rose, right? Yeah, there, so like is Mateo. Yeah, so I wonder. I wonder if there's any connection there. Hmm. I mean, there's the garden, but we we never get like a clear picture of the the roses perfectly. So right, I, I just being of the same class. I think it'd be it'd be plausible that potentially there's chatter between some of the roses and Mateo, but that is completely speculative. Yeah, I, this to say, I, I think it's not that likely that Mateo was kind of the center point of the conversation. I think more that the center of the conversation is whatever roses go through to become a rose, right? Like the, the experience in the garden might yeah. make them more intellectually different than other pinks and okay. might make them more susceptible. Because we, we our two examples of roses that we that we've named, that we know of, are we've both got three, rebellious. Evie, I don't think was a rose. She was just no, a no. Theodora. Theodora is a. Oh, I don't know if she's a rose. I think she's a rose. Yeah. I think she is a rose. I think you're right, but I, that just feeds into it. Yeah. So that's true. That just adds yeah. to it. Right. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. There, there's no firm answer, but I feel like there is something there where the roses have more consideration, maybe because the torture, torture quote, the additional training and perhaps torture that the pinks go through is more than the regular pink. And so they have a deeper understanding of what society demands. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Or maybe their role, their nature. Well, all of that feeds into kind of their mentality. Right. So as mentioned, there were a couple of goals that were squaring up against uh, Victra and Darrow here and one of them decides to proclaim themselves as they're walking across the banner. I am Felicia Ow, and then very quickly is decapitated by Victra before <laughs> she gets to even finish her fucking sentence. And Victor gets the line by Felicia, which is perfect. Mm, so good. I I giggled. I giggled out loud at that when I got to it. It is it is so funny how good that line is. And I, I know from meta context that like di- that Pierce fought to keep that inside. Okay. And, to like keep that in the book. Um, and to like let it persist through multiple rounds of edits. <laughs> so it's like, it's like, no, 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 we're keeping the by Felicia joke. <laughs> like, it's like, wow, just ridiculous, but super good. You know, it's uh, it pays off well. And I think it's still funny. Right now. Oh, for sure. At, uh, and at worst case, like, what's it do? It doesn't mean 
it doesn't mean the same thing that it means in 20 years. I, I don't feel like this, this is not a commitment to like a Kermit the Frog meme or something like that, you know, that would not be funny later. This yeah, is I something mean, that can still be yeah. funny-ish. It's self-contained. Yeah, yeah. If because there's, the if there's no Victor cultural addresses. reference to it, it's still a completely understandable response. Yeah. Maybe a little cold. Felicia Howe, click by Felicia, is still funny, not as funny with context. Yeah, agreed. Yep. It's um, it's a well-executed moment. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> we say. <laughs> yep. All right. You're fired. Nailed it. Nailed it. Roke is, of course, as we as we identify over this entire thing, he is betrayed by a lover, Amethea, name of the Rose at the Door. And that name is the species of a butterfly. It's a brown butterfly, which mm. is it's weird. Gross. It's just a moth, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, not. I know that moths and butterflies are different. And I think they're the same. Mm, I don't think so. <sighs> I, I think we know a, a we know a moth think, man is very good. At I think moths. So. I think the larvae stage of moths are worms, as opposed to caterpillars. You you may be correct, PJ. Uh, Amethea as a name, like it, it is an interesting species of moth when you look at it. It's got a moth very or butterfly. Very, very, butterfly. Fair point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, they they go from a black color when they're fresh out of the larva to a brown. So they do change, which is interesting in the context of the whole thing, right? Because they shift, but it's not mm-hmm. it's not a perfect metaphor, but it's interesting between the two. I'm actually shocked that. Pierce Brown didn't go for something more on the nose because it goes for references that you might not get that are on the nose here pretty frequently. And maybe I'm missing something, but I don't think I am. I don't know. Maybe there's a number of Amalthea, not like with an L in between the the TH, but that's not what this is. So in Mm -hmm. in Greek history. Gotcha. So we, we move on, of course, from the betrayal Roke refuses to stop the barrage of Mustang ship, deciding that it's better to take everyone else down in kind of this cold confrontation with Darrow. He's, he's not going to order the stop by any means until Darrow threatens him back with exploding the packs to destroy Roke's destroyers that remain within range, exploding the nuclear core to kill everyone else. He's confident that it won't matter in the long run, he being Roke. And so he just fucking continues as though it doesn't fucking matter. He tries to, like, warn them, of course, but of that, he doesn't give a shit. Yeah, basically says take take evasive actions and flee. But as Antonia says, or as Victor says, too late. Yeah, and they're all easily caught within that explosion. Lose the packs. A great ship to an explosion that effectively wins this battle for Darrow and squad. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's at least 50%, you know, one year. Severo, of course, is still lying in wait. The proverbial dead horse of the Moon of Thieves. The what? Claimed proverbial. Yeah. It's a proverbial, <laughs> but it's 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 the proverbial dead horse of the Moon of Thieves. You know, it's not it's not fair for you to make fun of me when I've been drinking throughout the entire podcast. Oh, I never said it was fair. I, it's fun, though. <laughs> well, uh, 
but he's he's the proverbial dead horse, the Mudathib, here to claim the rest of the ships and destroy much of Antonia's fleet. Part of this was to ensure he wouldn't be betrayed by the Moon Lords, of course, on Darrow's side. He he thought that it might be clever to take more ships ahead of time. They burrow through the moon. They collapse the path so that the other Moon Lords can't follow them through, as was planned, and are able to take mm-hmm. more of the, sh- the ships because of this kind of action. And it spooks Antonia enough where she retreats. Ah, that bitch. That bitch, that am I right? Bitch. Always retreating at the first time of trouble. I mean, she did get literally crucified once, so. Well, yeah, maybe yeah. a little bit, a little bit jumpy from that one. <laughs> um, I guess I can understand a little bit. Yeah, maybe, maybe a smidge. <laughs> like, a little bit jumpy about being on the wrong side, but continues to choose the wrong side. You know, mm-hmm. kind yep. of a kind of a you problem at that point, right? By all by all means, though, it seems like. She doesn't seem like she's on the wrong side. Like as far as power goes, it seems like she's on like she made a safe bet as as for who to back out like who to back up in this kind of mm-hmm. fight. But yeah, safe bets aren't always right, PJ. Yep, and Darrow is the, the pro- the protagonist, so <laughs> well, like, the characters don't know that PJ. Well, they should. Right. right. He's got the coolest name. Is, is that what it is? <laughs> Rogue's pretty fucking cool, guys. So That's it's not Sebro. a nickname, though. Fair. Darrow's not a nickname. No, the, the Reaper. Oh, eh. the Goblin. Goblin. The poet. Yeah, good. Good point. Mm. Antonia doesn't have anything. The Crucified. Antonia the, cru- the Crucified. <laughs> it's there we go. pretty bad for her, to be honest. Yeah, that doesn't work that well. So there, there's a lot to be talked about with the way that Roke winds down inside of the story, the way that Roke goes out. And a lot of what he says is interesting because I think that Darrow, for the most part, lies on a sort of parallel spectrum in, in kind of an opposite manner, where if Roke were capturing his ship in the same scenario, I feel like Darrow would be extorting very similar platitudes. He, he'd, be, he'd be saying very much the, the same concepts the same things so Mm -hmm. rope says no i have no such illusions but it's not about them it's not about me not every life is meant to be warm sometimes the cold is our duty and it sounds like something that darrow would also come out and say yeah if oppositely confronted yeah i think he would i don't know though um especially lately he seems to be a lot more sentimental and a lot more emotional about his decision making like even this scene coming up with Roke trying to convince him to not give up. Man, that's that's very true. I, I think that there is actually there's a conflict within Darrow that's clear here throughout a couple of the different even episodes that we had, right? Where Darrow has a problem rectifying his pre-box life with his post-box life. His pre-box life has layers of humanity intertangled with I can fix the class classism problem. And then his post box life is they're just going to torture me. And my only way out is violence. But, but he tries, but he still, he still tries to still, yes, he still tries for the post box life. Like he's, these two sides are conflicting with each other. Okay. Gotcha. That's what I'm, yeah, I understand. Yeah. So, so to, to, to speak to it directly, like obviously, pre-box rogue or pre-box arrow would have been much harder on this line of like please dear god save rogue 
like he was with Tactus, right? Like he was like, you can totally come around. Edero still has those feelings, but he also has glimpses of other feelings, right? What he talks about, it's it's a very kind of cliched concept and Pierce Brown phrases it in a very different manner. When he talks about the, like, it's not about the past, it's about the present and the future, that feels like those two sides conflicting and new Darrow or post-box Darrow winning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit, but I don't think he really had that much of a chance to convert Ro- to convert Roke either way. Oh, so no. No, no, no. Roke bit. is past redemption for sure. There's There's no way that Roke is coming around. At this point, <clears throat> it's it's a difficult it's concept to bear. A little fucked. Yeah, it, the the whole thing. It, it's it's this point at which, as well, Dero breaks. Right. It's as if we look at each other from distant shores, and the river widens and roars and darkens till our faces are pale shards of the moon in the deep of night. More ideas of the boys we were than the men we are. I see the resolve forming in his face, the determination pulling away, pulling him away from this life. And at that moment, Darrow changes his tone from trying to convince his friend to give up the fight to please don't kill yourself. And he he just kind of, he understands that he's making a very different argument where those two things are the same to Roke. Giving up the fight is effectively killing everything he believes in. And so they cannot be removed from each other. It's not even effectively. It is. No, right. Like that, yeah. that is what he believes in. Mm-hmm. They so. cannot be extracted from one another. Right. It's a it's a tough bit. So we, we get mentions early in the chapter, of course, reflecting on Darrow and Roke's relationship coming out of the tunnel after Darrow killed Julian Abalona. And the, the mantra that gave him that he's held on to throughout these books, which is keep swimming, my friend. And aside from the, the finding Nemo of it all, <laughs> it does, it does, it does ring very true here where the last words that Darrow really gets to say to his friend is that same mantra that was handed off to him in a hope that he can appeal to that same kind of reason where it's better to not end your life and continue and try to keep swimming. And he doesn't respond. Instead, he he says, be still, the night hangs upon my eyes, almost in response to that. And that is something that is cited from another piece of work here, of course, Roke being the poet. It is Act 5, Scene 5 of Julius Caesar by Shakespeare. Brutus, who is the betrayer of Mr. Caesar, of course, the man who first stabbed him. Mr. (laughs) Caesar. Mr. Caesar, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Student make jokes, DJ. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> Mr. I'm being Caesar serious. was my father. <laughs> I'm being serious, but I'm also making commentary. Uh, it's it, it's an intense it's an intense moment mm-hmm. for sure, and it is it is immediately calling back to that same moment of betrayal. It feels very circular here. Brutus, the line that he's calling upon, is the same person who betrayed is is Roke in the circumstance if we have the stand-in of Caesar as Darrow. And as opposed to the justice, here we are recording this on the Ides of March, uh, as opposed I'm, to the, <laughs> it's literally the Ides of March. That's fucking hilarious. Oh, um, God. That's so funny. Uh, the <laughs> I can't get over that. So That's really funny. I didn't catch that. <laughs> the, <laughs> 
the the sort of payoff here inside of the inside of inside of the situation, the framing that's going on is kind of the opposite of the way that Caesar goes, right? Where Caesar lives and Brutus dies because the conspiracy was found out. But Roke was the one who orchestrated the killing of everyone else. He was, in fact, the instrument. He was the blunt instrument. He wasn't the planner of the whole thing, which was the jackal, which we know going into the last book, he was the one who actually figured everything out. But Roke was the blunt instrument that was used to kind of execute the order and mm-hmm. as such attain position because of it. And that line being used to compare them is beautiful, magnis- magnificent, well done. Pierce Brown. Yeah. I, say, oh, I should he comparisons. No, word choice. No, I think there. that was I think that was well, well connected. Well, well connected. Now, well said. This is what happened when I drink. What what happened? This is what happened when I drink alone. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fine. We're here. And then at the very end of this chapter, he he takes his own life. He coils his race around his neck and he tightens it until you know it pops. Of course, and <laughs> it pops. Of course. Yeah, it made it sound more like he was popping a balloon, but it was more instantaneous than that. But I but mean, he, there's he shears off his own head. There's the the quote before death. I am Roke Al Fabii yeah. of the Gens Fabii. My ancestors walked upon Red Mars. They fell upon Old Earth. I have lost the day, but I have not lost myself. I will not be a prisoner. I am the star in the night sky. I am the blade in the twilight. I am the god, the glory. I am the gold. He's he stays true to what he what he is Until to the, the end. Very end. Yeah. You gotta kind of respect him for that. Yeah. And I I think I think I do. I think I am so bought in to Darrow's perspective on Roke, which is that if he wouldn't have made all of these mistakes, Roke wouldn't have been the problem that he was. And I know that Roke is kind of spit in the face of that over the course of this book and the last book, saying that, you know, obviously he broke when Quinn died and was no longer on Darrow's side. But I, I think that there's still there still is a chance to earn that love, to earn that respect, and to not undo an entire generation of spacism, but spacism, <laughs> spacism. Sorry, spacism. Um, but to <laughs> potentially amend some of those boundaries and fix it over time, where mm-hmm. like he he maybe could have been a temporary prisoner, and he would have made maybe came out on the other side and understood. It's tough, it's tough to answer these questions, right? Because, like, what do you do with someone who should be a genuine prisoner of war? Do you execute them because they have the wrong ideals? Or do you try to seek a humane solution in which you allow them to live out the rest of their lives in imprisonment? I mean, I, I think that this is ultimately the, the death penalty versus life in prison question. But I also, when applied to war criminals, I think it's a little bit a little bit different. But Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I think... I think Darrow would have had even a tougher time taking Roke in as a prisoner. Yeah, sorting that out. I, I think this is this is the the course of action that honestly I think makes the most sense for everyone involved. But he's also handling Cassius fine, you know? I don't think that's going to be the case. Uh, okay. Fair. Fair. You you have that as one of the predictions and I Sure, sure. Yeah. So to, to wrap up the chapter, the Imperia the Imperator, the poet, the strategen, Roke is dead. As I drank for at the beginning of the episode. It's iconic, of course, because you've already read this. But yep. here we are, nonetheless. 
So we move on to chapter 49, the last of the section, Colossus. And man, there's only a couple of things here, but I I think it's worth mentioning that Darrow is suffering from the death of Roke, even though you and I have already talked through that and the number of reasons that he may or may... He is suffering, not may or may not be, but the reasons that he's suffering through this entire thing. And Victra is is very much like, fuck it, he's dead. That's yeah. fine. <laughs> it's just like very much like take command of the battle. She she has kind of a grasp on the reality of leadership in these scenarios, which is nice. Mm-hmm. But Sefi sees Darrow grieving. And I think that that's a fascinating moment because Sefi has, as we've mentioned before, she's got a lower understanding of all of the other things all of the other technicalities inside of society. She's got a high-level view on grief. And she understands, of course, she just lost her brother. She sees this same kind of loss in Darrow and and basically gives the same kind of call-out. Like, I understand that you lost her brother. It's in here. She points to her own chest. And it's out there and points outside of the sky. And while not immediately reassuring to Darrow, I think that that speaks a lot about Sefi's character. Yeah, yeah, that anyone touched by anyone will carry on their their legacy, regardless of if it's positive or negative. Yeah, yeah, he, he's still I mean, with you is kind of the, the message, right? Right, but I, I think I'm trying to figure out why. I'm trying to dissect, and maybe it's just a quirk of herself, but the fact that she pointed to her own chest and it's it's pretty explicitly stated that way it, the the only other thing that i would say is that like touch is very explicit that's a good point in culture that's so like touching point. someone else is very intimate so like yes it would be crazy intimate but it would be so against culture lines here for that to happen yeah. that it would almost be an incongruence that makes sense yeah all right i'm back on board Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wasn't trying to shake it by any means, but no, I, I no, think no. that's I, sort of the. I I had qualms with with that a little bit, but mm-hmm. makes total sense now. Remembering that about touch with the obsidians. Yeah, that that particularly is a big deal. So she can illustrate it though, and I think that this is the most intimate moment from Sefi that we've seen so far. Of course. And she lost her own brother, right? And she was mourning that. And even here, she's understanding of the mourning, very directly communicative about it. Right. Um. So we learn that Antonia flees, scared, and gives the battle basically to the Rising. And the Moon Lords, who supported them, the Rim will be free on its own, proclaimed by Darrow. Everyone else, it will all come true. But there's kind of a weird... Weird note that happens here, right? After after we kind of know that the battle is shaking out the way that it is, we still have some fights to win, of course, with with like individual ships, and that's where Romulus is. But Darrow's not clear with what's going on on the Colossus. What do you mean it's not clear? He hasn't explained that he's beaten Roke to Romulus. Right, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. He actively lies about it. Mm-hmm. As a means of... <laughs> His next, his next action, his next big action is going to be blamed on Roke now, which is kind of genius, kind of <laughs> fucking crazy. It's, you know, it's definitely a combination of genius and crazy. Uh, it's, it's bold. So he, he decides to 
bomb the docks of Ganymede. He continues to call it Victra after a number of attempts to like reach out to other ships and is like, no, belay that order. Please stop. I have an idea. And decides that the move is to bomb the Ganymede, the docks of Ganymede, but to pretend that it was still Roke as a last daring effort to do that before Darrow actually seized control of his ship. And it's a bold lie. Yeah. There's a whole lot of moving parts that have to have to go right in order to not fuck everything up as far as like passing it off as an action by Roke. He's contained the the information pretty well, but still a lot of people on that ship that might know what's what's up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what do you make of the decision on the whole to bomb the docks of Ganymede? I like the strategy. He, he explains. I mean, he he mentioned earlier that his his victory today was not without its own betrayal. Going back on the agreement made with Romulus as far as collecting ships goes, sort of going early and collapsing the tunnels so they can't follow and collecting more ships. Mm-hmm. Um, he knows that the truce uh, uh, partnership with the Rim Lords are te- it's tenuous at best and temporary and sure. and completely temporary he also knows that they they're working with him essentially out of necessity not because they like him or his his uh his goal his his plans um so this bombing of ganymede ensures that they can't follow him for at least 50 years or something like that I think it's 50 years that they mentioned before they can rebuild everything and get out of there. So that ties them up for half a century. It also rallies a whole lot more people either against the Sovereign or for Darrow or a combination mm-hmm. of the two. Um, kind of a win-win-win in that respect. The, yeah, the, it- the loss is the people that are going to die when it's bombed, which he's right, kind of wrestling right. with a little bit, but seems to... Seems to be a little bit stoic about it. He he buzzes over it as though it was a war decision to keep them in place for 50 years, right? In addition to the other kind of benefits that you've talked about, which is it can be spun any number of ways, yeah. naturally. Especially if he blames it on someone else who's now dead. Yeah, <laughs> who we know is dead, actively. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of like one of those secrets that has to die with the ship, right? So you feel like you need to kill everyone who's on the ship. Or to make it clear that that kind of thing would happen. Right. Not saying that that happens, but like it feels like one of those kind of things. Right. Mm. That's what I'm curious about is what's going to happen with the entire crew of the ship and keep getting them to stay quiet. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting question for sure. So final question of the breakdown though, uh, Darrow, not question comments at the breakdown. Darrow asks Seffi to name the ship. And she names it Morningstar in her native tongue, which is Tear Morga. Tear Morga. I, I find it interesting that she names it Morningstar after this moment, right? After she sees this moment of violence versus potentially before. Mm, she kind of respects violence, though. She does. And maybe she, she has an understanding that's inlit by this moment. It's, um, it's interesting. I, mm-hmm. I agree with you that she respects violence, but maybe maybe she has a an understanding of what Darrow did that's deeper than we give her credit for. 
Right. Oh, I think she's incredibly intelligent, especially when it comes to yes, strategy. Yes. I agree, but that's not to say that she gets the the. I, I'm not going to call it like 4D chess, but she gets the 4D chess <laughs> of Darrow in space because she just flew off a fucking planet on the ice pole calves. Like she yeah, definitely has been fair. keeping up with everything until now. And she understands maybe the play as it comes to land, but she doesn't fully grasp the sort of meta textual context completely. Yeah. That's not to say that she doesn't catalog it. That's but. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you on that. So with that, we move into PJ's predictions for Woo! next week. So to lead it off, where are we going next week, PJ? I think, I think we, we go two back more to episodes. Tinos. Two more episodes. Back to Tinos. Okay. Back to Tinos for a little interlude. Okay. Re- right. Regroup, re-meet with everyone. Okay. Figure out what, check what other howlers die on this, on this journey. Okay. Um. <laughs> it's unfortunate. <laughs> I mean, Deadpool, man. I gotta, I gotta start calling people. <laughs> if they're alive at the end of this book, I'm getting fucked. <laughs> <laughs> and for the record, if you're wrong, I'm getting fucked. If, you, or if you're if right, I'm right. <laughs> yeah, right. Which is like just terrible luck between the two of us. Yeah, that's part. fair. It's a good time. Mm-hmm. So, what's happening with Cassius at this point? I don't think it's wise to keep him like he is, like they are. I think I think Darrow is going to seriously regret trying to keep him alive and trying to get as much information as he as he has been. I I, I think there's some bad shit's going to happen because Cassius is alive. Okay. Okay. All right. Where does Antonia go after retreating from the battle that we just witnessed, the Battle of Ilium? I, I think she's going to go back to to Octavia. Probably get chewed okay. out quite a bit, but as we've as I've predicted so many times before, and I've been wrong about it, I guess Octavia really doesn't punish people that much, despite okay. her reputation. All right, I feel like she would be a little bit harsher. So I think I uh, think she has time to do that. But yes, I agree with you. I don't know. So, final question. The Jackal still has all those nukes. Is that... What's, uh, what's going on there? <laughs> what's going on there? That's your question? It's some, some, <laughs> some bullshit. I'm not going to lie. But, <laughs> I mean, like, I still think that he'll, in mind. he'll be using them strategically as a means of ruining the Sons of Ares, both in numbers and in perception. Okay. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Sounds yeah. good. We're we're gonna we're gonna put those right there. Anything else that you've thought of over the week? Uh yes. Something I mentioned to you earlier um, that I just realized. Mustang is named Mustang because at one point Darrow saw her on a horse. <laughs> how fucking crazy! How upset would you be if your entire like professional nickname going forward is? something dumb as that yeah um to to be fair let's clarify i i do get dumb nicknames like that for the most part like colorblind or other things like that that are shorthand oh, it's it's not perfect of course but yeah no i i think that it's it's it is hilarious because also i didn't connect that dot until my first fucking reread of the original trilogy it was like oh she's called mustang because the horse girl Got it. Got it. Oh, <laughs> shit. Like, that's, <laughs> I just, for whatever reason, had tucked in the back of my mind, like, okay, 
she she wants to be called Mustang. Cool, neat. We're gonna call her that. And she has doesn't nothing to like, do with she that. She doesn't choose it. Yeah, not at all. <laughs> not, at not at all. all. It would, it would be like Darrow only being called Reaper in every situation. Yeah, it, it, just like to the same degree. Yeah, even like in bed, which is what basically Darrow does. Is refer to as Mustang. You know, you like her saying Reaper, like in bed. It's just so bad. It's so bad. Oh, that's um, hilarious. But it's it is it is a hilarious origin. But it is also you know it's it's a good nickname. It's funny. Good good call out though. Yeah, good call out. So next week we'll be reading chapter fifty through fifty nine, the beginning of the end of part four. Stars again, fifty through fifty nine. So that is where we will leave you for the week. Uh, if you are so inclined, please refer us to a friend, family member, somebody who you know has read the Red Rising series. So that'd be great, a great place to start. If you want to review us on whatever podcatcher of your choices, if it supports that, that'd be sweet. Otherwise, our website is wordsandwhiskey.show and our social media is wordswhiskeypod at both uh, Instagram and Twitter. We're always happy to see listener comments or posts and uh, really kind of keeps us going. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. We have had some really great conversation the last week with some of our listeners. So shout outs to all of you. You know who you are. And PJ, we have we have a review to actually comment on. Do we? Got we? One. Yeah, we do. We do. So it was, it was this. It was gory. Good show. Five stars, of course, like anyone should. And it just said PJ and Cross. Cross and PJ absolutely crush it. Sweet. And that's the first time I'm hearing of, of this. So yeah, it's it's a brand new review. It just just hit us. So awesome. Well, thank you, reviewer number one. <laughs> all right we will see you all next week bye bye